everyone, welcome back to the Jotun Podcast. We are a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, all the things that interest us. Today's question of the week is two parts. Part one, what languages do you know? And you can include languages that maybe you're not completely fluent in. Include ones that you know even a little. <laughs> and then what languages do you wish you knew? I'm Jenny in Brooklyn, and I will go first. I I know English and a little bit of French, and sadly, that's basically it. I've met maybe four French-speaking people in my life. I wish that I knew more languages that more people spoke, particularly Spanish, because in the U.S., a lot of people speak Spanish, and it would be useful to know. Is the last time you studied a language in college or high school? High school, yeah. yeah. So could you get by if you were to travel in Paris or <laughs> Quebec? Only because everyone there also speaks English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Hey guys, this is Scott. I've acquainted myself with quite a few languages, but not fluent in any of them. For instance, my heritage is Korean. So I'm not conversational in Korean, but I can kind of understand it vaguely just from being around it all the time. I'm really good with written languages because growing up, like in high school, like all the languages I, I took were non-speaking languages. I mean, I studied Latin, I studied Greek, and then in seminary I studied Hebrew. Is Hebrew a non-spoken language? Uh, I mean, non-spoken in the sense that like in my instruction in those classes, oh, they I never had any oral it. practice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was like completely visual, which means it's basically useless for the purpose of this discussion. If I were to do things over again, now whenever I learn a language, like I'm trying to learn languages on, um, you know, using my smartphone apps, kind of would just wish I knew more languages in general. That's how most of the world operates. We as Americans, we take it for granted. Most people just grew up like learning several languages at once, and that's the way their brains work. They name any language, I probably wish I knew it. <laughs> uh, you know, Chinese, Russian, Arabic, Spanish. All of them. Scott, you've been a part of churches that have a large majority of people who speak a language other than English. Have you learned little bits here and there of other languages then? Um, no. <laughs> Again, some people can like hear something a couple times and then be able to like recite it perfectly. Yeah. For me, it just, if I try to like repeat it, it just comes out all mingled. <laughs> Hey guys, David. Yeah, for me, I know English. I that's it. <laughs> that's <laughs> you never studied any languages. I studied Spanish from seventh grade through twelfth grade. I was conversational at a low level. I could probably talk with fifth graders at the end of my senior year in high school. <laughs> um, I studied Japanese. I was doing a language exchange with someone, and I probably became like. First grader conversational. My issue is I got the grammar, which wasn't bad, but then just memorizing the words, just like, uh, and then <laughs> writing it. If it was only the main base of characters, you know, like 26 letters, or whatever, I've been fine. But then they started getting all the Chinese letters and I was like, yeah, this is not going to happen. <laughs> There's like tons and tons of letters. <laughs> I did some Arabic. I got, you know, enough to go to not get lost. I try to get the accents good so people think I know more. <laughs> <laughs>
Then they start speaking to you too fast and you're like, wait, I don't actually understand. (laughs) What do you wish that you knew? Don't you wish you knew like Greek or Hebrew to be able to read the Bible in original languages? Not really. (laughs) I would rather... (laughs) I trust the translations, which we might get into later on today, but I'd rather be able to communicate with people. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That brings us to our topic for this episode, which is Bible translations. We have a lot of friends who are on the periphery of Christianity or who are interested in it. And one of the most common questions that comes up is, why are there so many translations of the Bible? Hey, Google, how many English translations of the Bible are there? (laughs) Okay, there are more than 450 English translations of the Bible. Wow. So that's pretty crazy spanning a few hundred years. And I'm sure Christians as well have this question, like one church uses this translation of the Bible, one pastor recommends this other translation. Um, How do I know that I'm really studying the best one? So today's topic is a bit more academic. I'll try to make it more relatable and more interesting. It's one of those questions that gets brought up all the time. And so we thought it'd be fun to talk about it And to start us off, David, you want to give us kind of an introduction to Bible translations? Kind of the idea of Bible translations comes from Christianity being about God relating to people. Even from within the Bible, you know, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right before the first sermon, people started speaking about God, praising God in different languages. So kind of the idea is that Jesus is supposed to come to us. And so I think that's kind of why I believe in just the existence of different translations. Yeah, just so God comes to speak to you. Um, and so you don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek to make sure you're getting it right. Um, translations, for example, with the New Testament, they're based off growing copies, early copies of New Testament. Back then, there's a lot more oral culture and writing, you know, writing things down, obviously, before printing press. So there's just tons and tons of copies of things. This is a good point to talk about the question of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Like some people have, have this idea of like, how is the Bible inerrant when scholars admit that there's all these different variations in the text and the manuscript? Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, the doctrine of inerrancy is that there are no mistakes in the Bible, there are no errors in the Bible, but that only applies to the original autograph copies of scripture. And by autograph mm-hmm. copy, I mean the original biblical author who wrote that book of the Bible mm-hmm. as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that with like the ability to write inerrantly. But then over the, you know, past 2000 years, as scribes, you know, monks, scholars made copies of the Bible literally thousands of times, these people were not inerrant. When they were copying something down by hand, you know, maybe they were tired. Maybe they were actually just learning Greek for the very first time, and mistakes happened. Isn't there a version yeah. of the Bible called the Murder Bible that dropped the knot, and so it says, "Thou shalt murder" or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was in their feelings that day, and they're just like, "Did you write this, Jenny?" Yeah, is this your Bible? Did I write this? Was this commissioned by the Jenny Riley Bible Commission? <laughs> She's not saying no. <laughs> like, for example, from this one book I've has called New Testament in Antiquity, they, they know from the New Testament, there's about over 5,700 
copies from the second to 14th centuries. The issue what Scott was talking about, they call it textual variance. If you all are into it and want to just look it up and just that's how they deal with it. I think it's admitting that that process is a good thing. When you look in the Bible in the beginning, they'll tell you the different Greek and Hebrew texts that they drew from. So also another thing with it too is basically there's translation philosophies. And that's kind of one of the reasons I do like different translations from the spectrum of word for word to thought for thought to paraphrase. Word for word is translating the literal word, but you might miss the meaning because like other passages that might say something like gird your loins, you might have to know what that... Isn't the King James Version an example of a very literal yeah. translation? Yeah, King James is very literal. For like beginning Greek students, when you start like translating the Bible as like your initial Greek assignments, it comes out like resembling the King James Version. It's very interesting. Something like the NIV, which is very popular, is more of a thought for thought, trying to convey the idea. And then something that's more paraphrased, like New Living Translation, um, or super paraphrased, like the, the message. It's good to kind of know the type of translation you're reading, so you know what you're looking at. So that's a good point you make, David, about knowing like when you pick a translation, which of the translations you're getting into, if it's more of a literal translation or more of a functional translation. So one of the best books on the subject of you know, how the Bible was formulated is the book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And the recommendation that these authors make is actually have more than one translation with you. Like, don't just use one English translation. If your goal is to really understand the text in its original context, have one that's word for word, have one that's thought for thought. Compare them, that'll help you to understand better at what the original biblical authors might have intended. Definitely. Like, for instance, this is one is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. To go for a very literal translation, King James, it says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. The thought for thought NIV says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. A more paraphrased-ish New Living Translation says, Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. It goes from having your loins girt about with truth so putting on the belt of truth. So you kind of get the idea of what's going on. To read the more little ones, you kind of got to know old Bible culture, I guess, <laughs> and like terms and stuff like that. So I have a question here. To me, it seems like the NIV was very popular for memorization. Is that why? Or is that because of my church tradition? Do I associate the NIV with scripture memorization because it's more of a thought for thought, and so it sounds more beautiful, and that's why it was chosen? Or do you think it was chosen in my church just because of the particular denomination that I was part of? I mean, I bet it's a little bit of both. Yeah. If your goal was to, like, read through the English translations and pick which one sounded the best reading it out loud, it wouldn't take very long for anyone to realize, like, the NIV just sounds the best. Yeah. The phrasing is just mm -hmm. less clunky. It flows very nicely. That's an example of a very successful functional translation. The other thing that's worth mentioning about the NIV is even though it's outdated in some sense, because it is more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation, it's very good at capturing the nuances of the original languages. 
That it can be interpreted in more ways. Yeah. The fewer words there are to read and to explain things, it's interesting, but the more complexity there is in it. Yeah. More and more modern translations, every time a new translation comes out, they actually continue to increase the word count of the Bible as they're trying to explain things better to the modern listener. The NIV, it's the lowest word count out of all English translations. So it's the closest to the actual word count of the original mm. languages. Some people will say it's a good thing because you're not overcomplicating the text. Right. You're also making it easy to memorize, which is a plus. <laughs> I also want to insert here that it is what I was talking about before is the adulterous Bible. It says thou shalt commit adultery instead of thou shalt not commit adultery. It was a typo. It was published in 1631 by Robert Barker and Martin Lucas at the Royal Printers in London. Polygamist? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rendition of the King James Bible. Okay, so it was a King James Bible that they typed did a typo on. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think a lot of people would have this question. Are newer translations of the Bible just updated versions of the old ones? Are they all translating from the same original text? And I think we're getting the answer no from David's background. But I think you might think that when you read the King James and you read the NIV, it's like, oh, this person just read the King James and thought, oh, this needs a little language update. So they kind of looked at the King James. But are these translations even using all the same source documents? There's a group of scholars who are basically tasked with updating the quote-unquote official Greek New Testament. This is the uh, Nestle Alond Greek Bible, named after its most well-known editors. So basically, every few years, this like official Greek New Testament gets updated as scholarship gets updated. So maybe someone compares some manuscripts and says like, Oh, we went with this one last time, but it seems like this other one is more historically accurate. And so they'll go with like a different manuscript to put into their official version of the Greek New Testament. And would they say that because they find more of version B? Like there are more copies of version B? The Yar are still like, archaeology is still happening. They're still finding manuscripts all the time. Hmm. They're quite plentiful. Actually, we should clarify for the listeners, when they find a manuscript, it's not like they find a complete New Testament from the book of Matthew to the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, <laughs> these are literally a couple pages or fragments of a single page. But these fragments are actually crucially important to like putting together the whole history of Bible transmission and figuring out what came first. Just like when you find a dinosaur skeleton, yeah, like people think you it. find a whole dinosaur and you never find a whole dinosaur. Sometimes you find like one bone, yeah. but the more you find, the better you get the full picture of what the dinosaur was yeah, like. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. It's a whole thing of like scholars working pretty much like detectives as they work backwards and try to figure out what is the line of transmission when error is introduced. Do we see this error being continued down the years? But back to the Nestle Alond New Testament. So right now they're on version 28. So we can't say like the Greek New Testament is set in stone as we understand it. It's actually continually updated. Oh. But it's basically been, as we can see from older texts like King James, which is from, what, in the 1600s? till now it's basically the same. There's been some scholarship around maybe the end of Mark or part of John 8. 
but it's not like any new things like Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> Thou shalt commit adultery or Jesus went to Jupiter. <laughs> when we're talking about textual variations, you know, some people hearing about this for the first time might be kind of freaked out. Like, oh, did we get it wrong? Like, did our Bibles get it wrong? Yeah. These variations are like literally a preposition or like one word that we don't know if it goes in or doesn't go in. Over 99.5% of the Bible stays mm. the same. It's like this 0.5% of variation that we're looking at. Like it doesn't change the theological scope as we've always understood the Bible. Mm-hmm. Are there any translations of the Bible that are heretical though? Because I know that some versions are different enough to include or exclude certain books. Yeah, but that's more of a denominational thing. That's mainly a Catholic Protestant thing, right? Referring to the Apocrypha. What's the Apocrypha? These are um, Jewish documents written in the intertestamental period. Yeah. Oh, so between the Old and the New Testament. It's like when Star Wars, what is it, Rogue One was between 1 through 3 <laughs> and 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> to make the Bible more relatable for you <laughs> listeners, we're going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> I love it. Well, Rogue One was amazing, so <laughs> so now I'm sad that I'm missing out on these books. I mean, we should point out, like, the uh, apocryphal books. They are important as, like, authentic Jewish documents that right. paint a picture of what the Jewish people were going through before the New Testament started. But the main reason why the Protestants don't include them is because there's evidence of these texts not being divinely inspired. Like, there's some things in it that are theologically unsound when compared to the rest of scripture. So they have more historical value than spiritual value. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I came from a church tradition that maybe borders on saying or openly says, uh, you know, you don't need someone to interpret the Bible for you. All you need is the Bible. You don't need any fancy book learning to understand the Bible. Do you think it's helpful to... <laughs> know the original language and be able to understand it, either as a pastor or just as a regular congregant, someone who's just looking to read the Bible and understand it. Yeah, so those are two radical extremes that I disagree with. <laughs> One, believing that you can read the Bible for the first time and like know everything it's talking about. A lot of the destruction that Christianity has wrought over the past few centuries comes from individuals who thought they knew better than people who are trained to understand the Bible. Um, one example would be like all these end times prophets. Mm -hmm. You know, every, every few years it's like, oh, Trump moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That means we're inching closer to the end times. Really inappropriate, unbiblical stuff. On the other extreme, God didn't design the Bible so that you needed a seminary degree to be able to understand what he wants you to understand, right? Right. Do you think that pastors should understand the original languages? Should that be something that people look for when they go to church? Like they sit down to listen to what the pastor has to say. Should they be expecting him to talk about the original language says this? I think pastors, where possible, should have a decent grip of the old language enough to understand it. Because I do think that's something that should be passed down. But there's many cases where that's not always possible, not? whether for lack of access. Especially like in certain two-thirds world contexts where a community is deeply in need of spiritual leadership and things like that. 
sometimes God calls people because, you know, there's a need in that Christian community. But we're talking about the United States, right? <laughs> the United States is, is the most well-off, most resourced country in the world, especially when it comes to our Christian heritage. There's no excuse for leaders to not be as responsible and as accountable as possible. I'm asking because I feel like for me, when I go to a church, that's what I'm here for. I love having the pastor break down, <laughs> hopefully accurately, <laughs> what words mean in the original. Um, like I heard a sermon recently going over the verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he began by explaining what the word heart, soul, and mind was in the original language. And ended up pulling all this extra kind of deeper meaning out of the text. Like the word mind, he said, we can think of that almost as muchness. Like you should serve God with all your resources. So if you have influence or if you have intelligence or if you have skill. But I thought, this is what I'm here for. I want this unpacking of the text that I kind of can't do on my own or maybe, maybe could, but it would be more of an uphill battle for me. And I think he just has these books sitting around his living room. <laughs> my pet peeve <laughs> is when the pastor becomes a poser. Like maybe the pastor reads something out of a paragraph in an online article and then he puts it in a sermon as if he was a Greek scholar. Like, oh, did you know that um, you know, this Greek word is written in this tense? And this tense gives it this extra meaning to it. <gasps> Does that happen? I mean, pastors never a source lot. their information. So, oh, no. So they always seem like they came up with it themselves. Oh, or, no. you know, they studied it in, in school when they clearly did not. So that's my pet peeve. I agree with you, Scott. Yeah, I think there's sometimes... Like there's also in John, I think 21, where Jesus mentions to Peter, do you love me? He uses different types of love, um, like full agape love, which is supposed to be like a full unconditional love. And then he goes to just kind of like the friend love later on. And if you only have love each time, the full meaning isn't communicated. I just wouldn't want someone to like, the Greek means when it's unnecessary, not doing it to just sound spiritual. I guess. Those examples you mentioned, David, are the same problem I mentioned earlier. Like people are recycling and ripping off of each other to such an extent that we now we have this like Christian cottage industry of like pop scholarship <laughs> where probably like, I don't know, half a dozen times in my life, I've heard someone try to explain you know, the difference between agape love versus eros love versus philia love. And they do it because they've heard it in a sermon themselves. And they know by talking about the original languages like that, it makes them sound smarter. And so you have this like thing where people are recycling. <laughs> it's not even scholarship. It's like... It's like retweeting. <laughs> like, oh, that's tweetable. There's no genuine investigation and research going on. It's kind of lazy. Uh, I know some people are hearing these things for the first time, so, you know, I have grace towards that. But, so this is me ranting. That kind of goes towards a problem that I have towards modern pastors, which is like, everyone is like taking the easy route. And because of that, no one is saying anything original. No one is like really hearing from God. I don't want to say no one, but very few people are actually listening from God in a way where they are bringing fresh insight into God's revelation and instead, they're just saying the things that sound smart. 
Hmm. Yeah, this isn't time to sound smart. It's not an oratory contest. So if I'm completely hypothetical situation, I'm sure. if I'm looking to find <laughs> a new church and I go on Sunday morning and sit down and listen or tune into their Zoom cast, how do I spot the poser versus the pastor? <laughs> Ooh, poser versus pastor. You're about to have a Bible translation that translates poser <laughs> to the pastor. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. There's like things you can investigate, like if the person went to seminary or just Bible school. Because for those who don't know, there's a huge difference between seminary and Bible school. Bible school is like getting an associate's degree. <laughs> it like doesn't really count for anything. Anyone can do it. I would say like being more practical. If someone's sermons really come from a place of intimate communion with God, like someone who is praying and thinking about things constantly, I do think there is a there is a freshness and a liveliness to the message. Like I get that feeling of like, oh wow, I've I've never heard this before, or I feel like God is speaking to me for the first time. And I think people who have you know listened to sermons both locally and online for the past 10, 15, 20 years, you know, you'll listen to a sermon and you'll be like, oh, I've heard this sermon before. Yeah. I got this point before. Or like, oh yeah, this person got this point from- Tim Keller. From this past. What's wrong with yeah. getting a point from Tim Keller? <laughs> or T.D. Jakes or Tony Evans. And again, you know, that's, that's fine to the extent that like you're educating people who perhaps don't know these things. But I do think there's something to be said for the fact that God made you to be who you are. Like, God didn't make me, if I were to be pastoring a church right now, God didn't make me to be, like, an Asian version of Tim Keller or, like, an Asian version of T.D. Jakes. (laughs) T.D.E. He gave each of us a voice and unique giftings for a reason. And I do think Christianity should be a place where originality just explodes, you know? Mm -hmm. Original, fresh insight and life and, and joy and different perspectives. Which I would say at the same time that it can definitely be a gift to take something like the Confessions of St. Augustine and make it something that I can access, <laughs> which mm. is something that Tim Keller does really well. For the church you're actually at, ideally there's some application to that specific community where the originality hopefully happens. I think it's fine to get things from other people. So the message isn't just something that's one size fits all. It's something that's specific for that time and that community. Otherwise, why do we even have church services, right? Why not just listen to the same podcast over and over? Yeah, we have a few decades of like recorded sermons. Why not just listen to those? Yeah, what do you think, Jenny? Jenny made the, I don't know, hand gesture. I don't know. (laughs) So should we do a closing question now? Which translation do you actually use and why? Yeah. Slash, which translation is the best? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it was both. Let's do both. (laughs) For me, I use the ESV and NIV. I think NIV is a little bit more on the thought-for-thought side, a little bit more modern English. The ESV is also overall, I would say, good scholarship too, a little bit more on the literal side. Every once in a while, I use NLT. When you get crazy. (laughs) <laughs> Which one is the best? King James? No. Um, <laughs> the best, I would say, I'm going to go with NIV. I like that one. It wow. could be popularity bias, but 
to me, it seems like a generalist translation, which I like. It's interesting, actually. Before studying up for this podcast, I didn't realize that the ESV and NIV translations actually kind of fall into different categories of the ESV being more literal and the NIV being more thought for thought. I generally use the ESV, not because <laughs> I really chose it, but I think many of the churches that I've been attending recently use it a lot. And I actually think that sometimes it's really beautiful, surprisingly beautiful, probably because of how it tends to be more literal. But I love like the translation of John 1246. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I think sometimes it just has these shockingly beautiful verses. But, of course, with my love for beauty and poetry, the NIV will always hold a special place in my heart because of all those verses I memorized for all those stickers and candy in vacation Bible school. <laughs> The NIV made it easier to memorize those verses, and sometimes they still pop into my head, which is what we want. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, and I should also give a shout out to the message because I just love reading the message. Would you call it a transliteration? Yeah. Of Proverbs. So funny. So hilarious. I, I highly recommend. <laughs> I need to try that. Yeah, I think we're pretty much in agreement. Growing up, when I wanted to do a deeper study of scripture, I would use the ESV. But when I teach from the pulpit, uh, I gravitate towards the NIV because it just sounds better. It sounds more powerful. There are a couple other translations I'll mention for people who might be interested. If you're trying to teach the Bible to people who, who have low-level English capabilities, like maybe they are ELL, or in my case, I've worked with refugees or um, young people, you know, like kids, I really recommend a translation known as Worldwide English. This was a translation developed... WWE? Like that's, like <laughs> that's a good point. It's actually... The abbreviation is actually WE, but it could have been WWE. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, the WE translation. The translator specifically tried to put the language into the simplest English form possible, so that those who with very basic skills can understand scripture. And if you're someone who wants to read it as maybe it looks like in the Greek, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the King James is very literal, but obviously the King James uses an older style of English that's a little bit harder to understand. There's a version called Young's Literal Translation, and you get a much better sense of like what it would be translating it. So just things to help you study scripture. But yeah, I think we're all in agreement. NIV is pretty reliable. But I guess we should mention some caveats about the NIV since we did all agree to it. <laughs> I would like an update to the NIV, a very, very mild update. And I don't mean like the TNIV, which you should avoid at all costs. It's like one of the worst translations. But the NIV does have an anti-Catholic bias. Ooh. So there are mm. a few words that are not present in the NIV translation simply because the translators didn't want it to sound too Catholic. I'll give you one example. Mm. The word tradition. The word tradition is in the New Testament a lot, but whenever the NIV translators come across that word, instead of tradition, they use the word teaching because to them, tradition sounds too Catholic. Wow. So things like that, just to be aware of. 
it always pays to like just be a self learner and you know look things up because it's very easy to find information on the internet. That's it. Hopefully, you guys liked this episode and we didn't make you think that the church lied to you and helped kept things from <laughs> you forever throughout your whole childhood. <laughs> but <laughs> thanks for listening. Like and subscribe wherever we are, Spotify and everywhere else. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Thanks.